What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Hidden Forces with me, Dimitri Kofinas. Today, I speak with philosopher, author, and essayist, Jim Holt. Jim is a longtime contributor to The New Yorker, where he has written on string theory, time, infinity, numbers, jokes, logic, and truth. He also writes regularly for The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, and The London Review of Books, and he is a former book columnist for The Wall Street Journal. He hosted a weekly radio spot on BBC Wales called Living in America with Jim Holt for 10 years, appeared on William F. Buckley's Firing Line and NBC News with Tom Brokaw. His book, Why Does the World Exist, was a New York Times bestseller for 2013, and his latest book, When Einstein Walked with Girdle, Excursions to the Edge of Thought, will be released on May 15th and is available for pre-order today. Jim, welcome to Hidden Forces. Very nice to be here. How'd you like that intro? It was very generous. <laughs> You've heard that before. You oversold me. <laughs> so the most impressive thing for me, I mean, it's really cool that you had a show on BBC, William F. Buckley. What was that like? Was that just once? Twice, in fact. And it was quite frightening because my opponent was Charles Murray, the author of the book The Bell Curve. Oh, wow. Uh, who is an uh, extremely intelligent man. And uh, is extremely good on his feet debating and is extremely good on television. And this was my virgin television appearance. And I think I got pretty badly mauled, even though I think I had the stronger argument. What year was this? It was 1995 when the bell curve, his notorious book, The Bell Curve, came out. And he was trying to draw a connection between the genetic profile of different races and their intelligence. And I was arguing against that point of view. And... um, yeah, I, I didn't hold up my side as well as I, I might have. And Buckley, I think, was he was getting a bit old then, and I think he was so bored by his conversation that I could see his eyelids fluttering. So I think he might have passed in and out of periods of light sleep. And when he woke up, he said uh, at one point, or he seemed to come back to consciousness, he said, he said, oh, and Mr. Holt's a mathematician. What do you think of affirmative action? And I thought, oh, I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> that was a good I don't impression. see the connection. That was a really and good I, impression. I could do a better impression than that. But yeah, Why don't you do one? No, I'm not going to do I could do actually William Buckley and Gore Vidal insulting each other yes. in the uh, 86 yes, in the 68 Democrat. Well, let, well let's, let's do that There's, a little later. Yeah, we, I, so we have serious matters to talk about, my dear fellow. <laughs> that's such a coincidence. There was, uh, do you ever listen to Sam Harris? I've never heard him. I know who he is, and he's friends of friends There was a whole thing that happened. There was a whole controversy around him and Murray that apparently ha- went back to last year, and I only found out about it because he did a podcast about a recent controversy that harked back to that, where he had Ezra Klein on the show from Vox, right. because supposedly Vox accused him of, or suggested that he was somehow in bed with eugenicist or some kind of idea, basically, because he was taking Charles Murray's side and saying that Charles Murray was simply just outlining the science. So I know about the book, The Bell Curve. I don't know how I know about it, but that's about it. I actually don't even know if I've ever seen Charles Murray speak. Was he explicitly making that case? He argued that, and this was a small portion of the book where he was talking was about one chapter. Uh, race and genetics right. and IQ. Yeah, one chapter that was the juicy bit that everyone read. Right. And uh, he argued that Either average IQ differences among races are genetically based or they're based in something else. In either case, they're very, very hard to change. And he would refer to very elaborate educational interventions that with children that would begin at the age of, say, two or one and a half years old, where they would be put in a very stimulating an intellectually rich environment and be given the best you know, nutrition and so forth. And that would produce temporary IQ gains. But 
they would fade as the years went on. So his point was that this is what he's claiming. I don't agree with it. We right. know that there are average differences between the different races and ethnic groups and IQ. They may be genetic. They may be something else. In either case, they're hard for society to alter, so we should just accept them. And this struck me as a counsel of despair. <sighs> I think that you can't properly control for all those variables. Like, how do you, you know, like, first of all, put aside the fact well, you that- you can't control for racism, for one thing. That's, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you can't control for racism, but you can't control for all sorts of things that would- Actually, you, you can, but that, that's a subtle point. <laughs> and it <laughs> well, actually I, gets into rather ugly no, research, but, in my opinion. Uh, no, but what I mean is, for example, you can't control for the impact of being- black in America, the negative impact that that has on your self-esteem and maybe other things that will affect your learning and your ability to all so subtle ways in which you, that will impact you. I just don't know that you could create a control environment to make a definitive statement about how much is environment, how much is genetics. Putting aside the fact that measuring intelligence itself through IQ is... I don't know how great of a tool that is for measuring intelligence. Yeah. I, actually, there's one case where there was almost a natural experiment in race and genetics and, and IQ. During the Second World War, American GIs who were in Germany, a lot of them had tender moments with some of the native German women, and this produced tender a batch moments. of children. <laughs> some of them were white. Some of them were African-American. So you had a, uh, a set of offspring, oh. a rather sizable set of offspring of both African-American men with white German mothers and white GIs. with oh, white, and so you And they actually, researchers compared their IQs, and they're exactly the same. That's fascinating. Uh, in fact, the offspring of the black GIs had a slightly higher IQ on average. So there is a case where you're almost controlling for racism because they're growing up in Germany where you know, there's certainly less race. I mean, they're, you know, right. African-Americans were, were, were rare There's less racism for yeah, sure. Yeah. Also, in general, certainly in terms of diseases, when you mix races, when you mix people with more diverse backgrounds, you tend to get better offspring. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> certainly in the case you get of- An extreme example of how that works is, I think it's somewhere in Brazil, there's a little sort of colony of perfect Aryans from Germany who wanted to create a kind of Nietzschean Hitlerian state. The, the people they've been, they've that been left inbreeding. after World War II. Yeah, that, for that sure. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they've yeah. got beautiful blonde hair and blue yeah. eyes, and they're really stupid. I've met. I've <laughs> met. Get, I've and met. And they get a lot of diseases. So, I've, I've yeah, actually. Pure, met, I've actually met some of those. Uh, have yeah. You? Well, well I told a, you I was. I managed off-campus <laughs> housing for NYU out of college. And they had a cohort of freshmen that were international students. And mm. in fact, there were some blonde, blue-eyed Brazilians and Venezuelans. <laughs> I, wondered, I wondered how authentically Venezuelan and Brazilian, in fact, they were. Yeah. So, Jim, I was telling you before we started today that I normally have a construct of these rundowns, which are much more structured based on the, the work of the author, and you have a great body of work, and you really are an essayist. I mean, I, I said you're philosopher, author, and essayist, but I, I find that reading your work your writing style is very unique and it comes across. Like if I were to read you now from now on, I wouldn't be surprised if I would be able to guess that it was you. So I, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, no. Well, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> That's it's, right. yeah. So, and there's, 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 the fact that I'm, I'm essentially an essayist means I simply have a short attention span. Probably, <laughs> I, I get bored with themes more easily than people who write makes, book length. That poetry, makes, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, because yeah. you, you write on so many different things. And in fact, your book, When Einstein Walked with Girdle, consists of, innumerable number of essays that touch a wide variety of topics. Yeah. So basically, my point being, when I was thinking about how to construct this interview today, I felt like it was a unique opportunity to have a slightly unstructured conversation with someone who's able to go far and wide and deep and shallow and whatever in this domain of philosophical pursuits. 
Okay. Good, um, good, good. It's been unstructured enough so far. <laughs> and I, I like sticking to the shallow end. I'm doing uh, my best. So, <laughs> so let me ask you this first. How would you describe yourself? I say that you're an essayist. How would you describe yourself in all seriousness? I would say a, an intellectual dilettante in that I've been interested in a fairly broad range of topics, and I've spent time in the various tribes that pursue these topics. I spent a semester at Berkeley at the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute just being with mathematicians and imbibing mathematical, abstract mathematical concepts the entire time and sort of observing them and not knowing that I wouldn't want to spend my entire life in this tribe. But they're doing some awfully interesting things that are, you know, at the very limits of human intelligence. And another community that I spend a lot of time with, particularly recently, is the community that consists of uh, physicists and philosophers of physics who worry about foundational issues in uh, that are presented by general relativity theory and by quantum mechanics, how to make sense of quantum mechanics, how to understand the philosophical implications for space and time that are posed by Einstein's theories and conceptual problems with the theories and that sort of thing. And so I go to a lot of conferences with these people and we present papers and uh, and spend a lot of time just you know having this wonderful luxury of thinking about these rather abstract notions that are very rich in that there's a technical dimension to them. You have to know a lot of mathematics and a lot of physics and so forth, but it's also you know, thinking hard in a foundational philosophical way about what does it mean for a scientific theory to be valid? How much can you expect to learn about the fundamental nature of reality from scientific theories and, and that sort of thing. So that's fun. And actually, now I'm working on a rather different topic. I spent a lot of time with the um, New York at the moment is the philosophical center of the English-speaking world. New that's York been, is New the York City is, yeah. And that's been the case for about, uh, for about the last uh, 15 years. And so New York University has the best philosophy group of philosophers. It does in the have a great. Group. It yeah, does yeah. have a great. No, it's, number, no, it's un, undisputedly number one now yeah. in all the rankings. And Columbia is here, and the City University of New York, and Rutgers, which is also extremely good. So this amazing community of philosophers. And so recently, I've been thinking more about a very different kind of issue from the one that I'm used to thinking, namely how to live, a question that was originally classically posed by Socrates in, uh, in the uh, Plato's dialogue, The Republic. And what's interesting there is that... What is the good life? Is yeah, that... what is the good life and how much, to what extent can we, through exercising our allegedly free will and our faculty of, of reason and our willpower, make our lives better by you know, sheer reflection and intellectual thought. And the old idea that goes back to Socrates is that by clear thinking and clear reflection and wisdom, we can make our lives go much better. Recently, the new sciences, the so-called new sciences of the mind, which uh, comprise cognitive psychology, neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, behavioral economics, are giving us a very different message. They're saying, we don't have free will in any meaningful sense. We are hardwired to be irrational. There's no enduring self that undergirds our identity. And willpower is just a matter of how much available blood sugar we have at the moment. It has nothing to do with character and this sort of thing. So there's a very pessimistic message about human autonomy and our ability to live better lives by reflection and by reason that's coming out of the sciences. And so what I'm concerned with at the moment is trying to salvage the philosophical, the traditional ideal 
for how to live a good life and, you know, it, see how much of it can be salvaged in the face of this scientific onslaught. So it's rather different from what I've been doing before. And I'm finding out that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of you know, terrific ideas that are being generated by young philosophers that are not getting out to the public. And these ideas are not just intellectually interesting, but they're really therapeutic when you learn about, you know, they come with labels like self-constitution and wholeheartedness. Sounds, you know, sounds a little squishy compared to what yeah, I, squishy. the kind of thing I, you know, I, a... I prefer. <laughs> I prefer algebraic topology and, uh, <laughs> and uh, quantum field theory. But, you know, these things are rather important. And they're actually, since I've been working on this new book, I found that it's been very therapeutic for me. It's like giving myself a dose of, uh, of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I've been a little happier and a little bit uh, less prone to procrastination than I have been in the past. So, sorry, that's really unstructured. That that's answer. actually really great because you knocked off a bunch of questions. You knocked off two very specific <laughs> ones. One was, what is a good life? And the other one was, I didn't even does, begin free will, <laughs> does free will exist? Well, I mean, you addressed them. Mm. But you indirectly addressed another question that I wanted to ask you about, which is, can a society of human beings live without religion? In other words, can a society of human beings live in this sort of Spock world of reason? And it sounds like you're saying that a lot of work is being done by these young philosophers to provide a philosophical foundation for being able to do that, that doesn't rely on myth or religion that you find promising? Yeah. I mean, this issue goes back to Plato's dialogue, Euthyphro, where Socrates is encounters a man named Euthyphro who's going to the uh, court in Athens to prosecute his father for impiety. And Socrates is you know, trying to reason with him. Maybe you don't want to prosecute your own father. And you know, what do you mean by piety? And Euthyphro says, well, you know, piety, or we might say goodness, is what the gods love. That's how I define it. And then Socrates says, wait a minute. Is, is the good <laughs> good because the gods love it? Or do the gods love it because it's good? And that's a really interesting dilemma. And if good is just a matter of what some deity arbitrarily wills, then there's no reason we should pursue it other than fear of being you know, eternally punished by this deity. But if good is something that you know, the God or God's love because of its own nature, then we can discover that nature. We don't need a divine authority. We don't need a deity to discover what is good. And that, you know, that's the reasonable conclusion, I think. And so I would say as an empirical matter, there are many societies that are effectively godless now. I mean, a good example is the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark, then, of course, Finland, which is not Scandinavian, but has kind of the same ethos. Those are some of the most morally highly evolved nations I've ever been to. So it's very decent in the way the people in society take care of one another, a very high levels of social trust low crime, low corruption, and that sort of thing. And, you know, this is a kind of residue of a, you know, a Christian morality that existed there, you know, until the 19th century. And in a sense, it is a vestige of a religious morality. You're saying the moral foundation that compelled the society to create these social programs. Saying it's a residue of the Christian heritage. These countries, yeah, all have Christian heritage, but they've left that behind. Right. What remains is a core of moral decency that's very powerful and I think provides an instructive example for our own country. Well, Europe is more agnostic or atheistic than the United States. The United States is of much more religious. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Many Americans don't know that. In that dialogue, I believe Socrates came down on the side that the gods loved it because it was good, not because it wasn't because the gods 
loved it. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm having a brain glitch. But I mean, in Theogenia, the universe came before the gods. The gods were part of it. If I understand how he went, he reasoned by it. But we read. I'm it not, we re- I can't go I up again. You're, you have a native understanding of these <laughs> philosophical an, matters, I being de- a Greek American. I'm guessing. I definitely uh, don't. So have I'm it. at a severe disadvantage <laughs> That's here. Not, it's not. Uh, it's you not, probably it's, read the Euthyphro in, uh, in classical Greek. No, uh, <laughs> I, I certainly did not. I've tried. Okay, I've tried. To, <laughs> I've tried. No, I don't know ancient Greek. I've tried to make sense out of it, and uh, I couldn't. You, it's a completely different language, which you, I'm sure you know. In fact, <laughs> as you probably do, you know ancient Greek. When I was in college, I uh, enrolled in a uh, Greek 101, and when I learned that one of the verbs for to be was gignomai, I said, this language is not for me. <laughs> I mean, if I were designing a language, I would not make the verb to be sound like gignomai. And also, it's very, very hard, because I mean, if Latin is checkers, Greek is chess. Yeah, so I decided that it would be better to learn languages like French and German, which are currently spoken. It was a, a great mistake, but one of the, the great things about growing old is that you lose brain plasticity. And you, when does that get, start? <laughs> it starts actually. It starts at your. Don't laugh. It starts. You you're you're losing it too, buddy. Thirty five uh, is that one? That... No, it starts around, you know you're in your twenties really. You know that's why. Um, How do you prevent it? You got you got you got to be able. Uh, you can't. You can't. What you can do is learn the hard stuff when you still have brain plasticity. So that's why I always advise young people who, believe it or not, seek out my wise counsel constantly, although I've made a terrible pig's breakfast of my own life. But I always advise them to study mathematics, to study you know, hard subjects that require you to think in a quantitative or symbolic way. It could be you know, mathematical economics. It could be mathematics or physics. because, And then lay down that circuitry in their brains. And then when they get older, they can be snobbish about people who don't know that stuff, and they can stand up to people who do. I've heard taking long walks helps with that. Uh, that <laughs> that's, that's certainly. That's a, I'll tell you that's what. A cer- sad old person's theory. <laughs> certainly, uh, yeah. this show helps with that. I will tell you, it's gotten easier because I've had to make certain adjustments. But the first ten or twenty episodes of the show that I did, it felt like I was stretching my brain around. I actually was speaking to a friend of mine and telling him what it was like preparing for this episode with you. And I felt kind of like I just took my brain and I put it inside a jar and just let it soak. That was sort of preparing for this show because I had to think about all these different areas, ethics, metaphysics, philosophy of science, all these different things. And there wasn't any way to structure that. I couldn't control this interview. So I just kind of thought, let me just kind of soak in this a little bit and then see what comes out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the <laughs> I try to think about these things in, an, in in the most elementary possible way. I mean, the core question here is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why does the world exist? And this is kind of a crazy question. It's a question that someone famously observed would only occur to a, a metaphysician or to a child. Mm. And there is something quite child. It's, it's when you don't know when to stop asking the question why. And eventually your parents say, oh, just go to bed, you know. Well, you said when in uh, Why Does the World Exist that this was not a question that occurred to you when you were a child and later when it did occur to you, you were, or it didn't occur to you when you were a metaphysicist or a philosopher, but uh, then later you weren't a child, so it didn't kind of, this didn't apply to you. When did you first encounter this question? How did it come up? Well, and- yeah, I was a victim of uh, what I would call premature intellectual closure. When I was a child, I was raised by, uh, my parents were fairly religious. My father was a Catholic convert, and I went to a um, a religious um, elementary school taught by lovely nuns who had very beautiful souls, but they told me a certain story about 
how the world came into existence. It was created by God, and God was eternal. And why did God exist? Well, it's just part of his line of work. You know, God exists by his own nature. That's one of his perfections, necessary existence. And uh, this story gratified my curiosity about where the world came from for quite a long time. I grew up in Virginia, but oddly enough, there was a Franciscan monastery right over the hill from my house. So it was full of monks. It was like a little bit of the you know, middle, middle ages that had somehow gotten, you know, reappeared in the state of in the Hicksville of Virginia. And I used to go over there and talk to them, and they would explain scholastic metaphysics to me, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, all the medieval stuff. You know, it's really highly evolved nonsense, I would say. But it seemed very cool to me at the time. Mm. And so uh, it wasn't until I was a teenager and I started having doubts about the religious story that I had imbibed as a child that I became aware there was something called philosophy and there was something called existentialism, which had you know, emerged in France and it involved kind of smoking giton cigarettes and wearing berets and ha- hanging out in cool jazz clubs in the uh, Latin Quarter of Paris. Mm. And also it involved big books like uh, you know, Being in Nothingness by Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm. And uh, so I went to the you know, local college library and got some of these books out. And, How old uh, are you? You know, 13 or 14 or 15. So mm. I was a you know, obnoxious little pretentious twerp. Hmm. But I don't apologize for that. <laughs> In looking at one of those, I went on to Martin Heidegger, who I didn't know at the time, was very friendly with the Nazis right. during the Second World War. Everyone uh, feels like they need to, to mention that whenever they bring up Martin Heidegger. We did a show with Christian Mespion on Phenomenology. It's just funny because I watched a number of uh, sort of interviews or panels of different philosophers talking about it. Everyone always brings that up right at the front. It's like a qualifier. Yeah. Well, should I have said Heidegger was a Nazi? Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> That's a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know that, oh, right? Is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, when I was that on- was a uh, Seinfeld episode. There was a whole episode. was like, not that there's anything wrong with that. Okay. Yeah. yeah good. Yeah. yeah. But actually, when I was on uh, the um, Colbert's, not the, the new Colbert show- but You were the, on the, the old Colbert the show. The old Colbert show. That's Colbert amazing. Yeah, For yeah. what? For this book, Why Does the World Exist? That's amazing. You know, he gets on- That's Being awesome. on a show, it's like being the Washington Capitals playing the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, essentially, you're you're a stooge to be yeah, victimized but that show by been, his. That's great, though. That's I mean, yeah, I, it was fun. I wouldn't want to be on his show now. I mean, I think it sucks. But like his, oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I, I think <laughs> it sucks. I like your, Stephen Colbert. You should I just, be a TV critic. It sucks. I, 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 that's, a, <laughs> that's very nuanced I judgment. I think it sucks because I felt like what he was so good at was Colbert Report, and like he's doing this, and I don't know. It's just not my thing. I, well, I, you know, I, the crazy I, thing about that show is that when I was in the green room before <laughs> going on. He came in and he was in character. He was playing the right wing blowhard and chatting with me, and but in a very bumptious way. And then after the show, he came back into the green room as himself. I guess Stephen Colbert. Colbert. And he's just a very you know <laughs> smart, charming guy. And it was weird. It was like dealing with like dissociative identity syndrome. Maybe. But on the on the show, you know, where he plays the right wing blowhard, quite religious, and he, he was making fun of the question. You know, why does the world exist? You know, God made the world. That's ridiculous. And I, you know, who could be interested in such a question? And I said, well, you know, Heidegger was interested in it, and he was a Nazi. Is that right wing enough for you? Uh, <laughs> the audience didn't get it at all. You know, that joke fell so flat. They didn't so, get yeah, it. Yeah, well, it's actually not funny, but uh, that was my best. They're like and, being in time. <laughs> <laughs> and they had told me, the producer said, now, Mr. Holt, don't try to be funny. That's Colbert's job. Ah, you, you just, you know, be yeah, very straight. And so sure. I disobeyed their advice, and uh, you the audience punished me for it. You overstep your boundaries. Let me ask you this. You've met a lot of people, clearly. 
Well, one of the questions I had to ask you is, and considering how many brilliant people you've spoken with, have you encountered someone who's so brilliant that it just was an experience unlike any other you've ever had in conversation with them? Yes. The best example of that was a philosopher who was the only philosopher, to my knowledge, who's ever been on the cover of the New York Times magazine. And his name is Saul Kripke. And he was on the cover of the New York Times magazine in 1976 because as a teenager, he invented what was, I won't describe it, but it's called a semantics for modal logic. It was a way of interpreting the modal logic, the logic of necessity and possibility, which is a you know a very odd thing for a teenage boy to do. And then he went on to create what is called the new theory of reference, which caused a revolution in analytic philosophy and ushered back in the field of metaphysics, which had been banished by logical positivists and by ordinary language philosophers early on. I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I'm telegraphing all this because I want to get to the punchline. So Kripke was also a mathematical genius. And, and you've um, also studied pure mathematics as an undergraduate? Or as a, as yeah, that's what I did as an undergraduate. Yeah, yeah. You did I mean, actually, as an undergraduate. <laughs> we don't have to get it. In my case, I was pre-med and I finished everything early. And I thought, what can I do now? I've got an, a year to kill. And all the cool intellectual kids were always talking about Galois theory and group theory mm-hmm. and complex analysis. I thought, I'll try mathematics. You know, I've already gotten to medical school. If I'm no good at it and I get Fs, it doesn't matter. And I found that I, you know, I was okay at it because I was willing to think in a very abstract way. Right. And pure mathematics is not about doing calculations. It's about proving things logically. But back to Saul Kripke. <laughs> so Saul Kripke, in a very scandalous episode in the late 1990s, he was accused of plagiarism, not copying someone's writings, but stealing someone's ideas, that someone was a woman whose name is Ruth Barkin Marcus. She's dead now. Kripke is still alive. And the claim that was brought by a philosopher was that Saul Kripke, the great genius of the profession, had actually got his ideas from a seminar from this woman and had not understood them, had been confused by them. And by the time he understood what they were, he thought they were his own ideas. And so the woman had been unfairly deprived of credit for these revolutionary ideas that gave rise to the new theory of reference. So I was, since I could, you know, understood the philosophical issues and I could write, you know, for newspapers and so forth, they asked me to write a piece about this great scandal. And uh, so I got to talk to Kripke and also to the woman, both of whom were extraordinary figures. But Kripke was the first, you know, unmistakable genius that I had encountered. And at the time, and he liked talking to me, and he was, you know, weird on the telephone, but in a, you know, in a, a genius, you know, right out of central casting. And I was working at the time on an essay on the, on infinity and in the infinitesimal. The in, oh, that's in small. the book. That's in the yeah, essay yeah, yeah. book. Yeah. And uh, I would just mention that to Kripke, and he would suddenly produce these completely fresh, original, new ideas spontaneously. That's interesting. And he would kind of chuckle at them, not because. He was proud of them for having produced them, but just because they were beautiful ideas. And give me it was an example. Kind of what su- do you mean? Like you would discuss with him what you're writing in your paper? And yeah, I would just would... mention it quite casually, just to make myself seem like a legitimate person to be talking to him as a, as a reporter. And he he was oh you know I haven't thought about that and well he has a very funny words oh I haven't thought about that in years and I can't remember what insights he produced but having looked at the whole mathematical philosophical literature I was pretty familiar with everything that was out there and suddenly here was something new that he was generating spontaneously and so that, I thought oh that's what it's like to be a genius you. You, you turn your mind to a hard topic that you have not thought about, and 
these brilliant ideas spontaneously appear. Are you saying that it's the capacity to think creatively about something and produce completely new ideas around it or new insights about it? Yeah, and to do that in a casual way that is driven by sheer intellectual pleasure. I mean, another good example of that is Richard Feynman, the legendary physicist, who I never met him. He died, uh, you know, he was famous when the space shuttle Challenger blew up Mm -hmm. and he was on the blue ribbon panel that investigated it. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who figured out that the O-rings were, when they got very cold, lost their flexibility. And that's why the space shuttle Challenger blew up. And he was famous for, at the press conference, taking an O-ring and sticking it in a glass of ice water and then showing that it lost its flexibility. Mm-hmm. Now, Feynman was a lot like Kripke in that respect. He would, he said, you know, we all know that uh, the theory of electromagnetism came before quantum mechanics, but, gee, I can do this really interesting little derivation where I start with a very simple principle of quantum mechanics and I can derive the entire theory of electromagnetism. And he did this just to amuse himself, and he would show it to colleagues, and they said, oh, I never dreamed that could be done. I knew you could go from electromagnetism to quantum mechanics, but not from quantum mechanics to electromagnetism. You should publish that. He goes, oh, no, it's just a little thing that I thought of over lunch. Wow. um, So the ease also of being able to do with ease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also there's a certain lack of almost intellectual humility that it's not that I'm cool because I thought of this. It's that... This beautiful idea, idea was out there, and I, and, you know, I was lucky enough to see it. Um, In a very and, literal sense, do you think that that's sort of how he viewed it? Feynman? Yeah, that it was out there in that sense, that it was out there and that he discovered it. Because that brings us to some fundamental questions about the nature of reality. Yeah. On that particular issue, Feynman, I know what you're getting at, is mathematics something that kind of exists eternally mm. and we... We uh, discover these truths that have been there all along. It's like idealism, Platonism, or is mathematics just something that we invent for our, you know, whatever you know, scientific or other purposes we have? It's just a human invention. Feynman was very much in the invention side. He said, when you're doing pure mathematics or you're doing mathematical physics, you have a sense that you're in touch with this eternal reality, but it's not real. It's an illusion. Feynman said, it's just a feeling. And that's a, an issue, whether mathematics is something that's real and out there. And when mathematicians are studying mathematics, it's like astronomers peering out at the stars and looking at this pre-existing reality. And that's how they feel when they're doing it. And a lot of them are devote themselves to it because they do feel they're in touch with this extra human reality. And if you tell them, oh, it's just a kind of human-invented game that's useful for doing certain, making certain scientific inferences – you know, that's a kind of disenchanting, disillusioning revelation. They're sort of sustained in their vocation by the thought that they really do have this kind of extrasensory perception of an abstract reality that ordinary humans like you and me don't have access to. And so, you know, I would say in my time I've spent among the mathematical tribe, about two-thirds of them believe that mathematics, you know, they're kind of religious in that respect. Mm-hmm. Mathematics exists in the same way that... Pure mathematicians that, that you, you've spent... Your yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they really believe that. W- what do you believe? I'm curious. Uh, if, I'd like to you, believe that. It's, have... it's a lovely romantic idea. Actually, a friend of mine at New York University named Hartree Field, who's a brilliant, brilliant philosopher and logician, he wrote a book called Science Without Number. In a very technical argument, he proved that you could do all of classical physics 
without positing the existence of any numbers at all, real numbers or whole numbers, whatever, you could essentially remove all of mathematics from physics and talk about simply sets of space-time points, which are actually physical items. Mm -hmm. And in, in doing that, what he showed and was that this argument that mathematics has to exist because it's indispensable to science is really not true. But he proved it using mathematics, didn't he? <laughs> no, he, <laughs> he did <laughs> that's, that's, sort that's, of a that's a good, that's a good uh, line, but not quite true. No, he's, no? Yeah, he's not as naive as that. But, that, but, yeah, yeah, that. That would be the first criticism that you would make, but he could refute it. But um, yeah, he said, you know, it's very convenient. To, so you can think of mathematics as like a very complicated accounting system. It's not eternal. It's not, you know, written into the fabric of, of the universe. It's just something that we invented. It may be that when we encounter extraterrestrial civilizations, if there are any, and if we ever do encounter them, they might not have anything like mathematics. Right. You know, in, in science fiction movies, like what was the movie? It was called Contact with uh, where Jodie Foster right. is a... I love that uh, movie. Okay. I haven't yeah. actually seen it, but I've, I've heard a lot seen about it. it. No, no, no. I like it. It's actually, it uses metaphor to really discuss the questions of the mystery and sort of religious interpretations of that mystery and the rational, non-mysterious mind approach that says that science can ultimately resolve all the mysteries. So Jodie Foster is, is looking for, just a quick summary okay. for our audience, the movie begins with Jodie Foster speaking, or listening rather, at SETI, listening for extraterrestrial life, and you learn as the movie progresses that she lost her father at a young age and there's a sort of conflation between her extraterrestrial life and her search for her lost father. And in some ways that also becomes like a search for sort of where she came from. And she meets Matthew McConaughey, who is a priest in this movie, which is so funny. Really? Yeah, he's a priest. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a priest. He's a priest and he's <laughs> flirting with her and there's an attraction there. And he's trying to really coax her to look at the what science can't tell us, can't prove to us, right? Okay. The limitations of our conscious experience and uh, the limitations of the empirical method as used by a conscious being that is examining the fundamental questions of being are, I would take this position as well, are unknowable in the deepest sense because you're examining them from your own state of consciousness. Anyway, it's an interesting play on that and ultimately questions about faith and what is faith. And, right. and what does she hear when she's hearing a signal that she attributes to an extraterrestrial civilization? What exactly is she hearing? Well, she, I know the answer to that. <laughs> well, she does. Ultimately, there is a signal that is sent. That signal is a blueprint for a sort of contraption that society actually builds. Okay. She goes in that vessel and then she has an experience when she comes out of it of having gone through a, some interdimensional break in space time that took her to some other part of the universe. And she met an alien that was in the form of her father. And she came back and she was testifying before Congress. And she was saying that this is what the experience she had. And they said, look, you know, professor or doctor, here is actually what happened. And they showed her a video where she fell through right through the hole and nothing happened. And she said, well, you know, I know that that's what it shows. And I know that if I were in a position, I would say the same thing, but I just don't believe it. I can't. And the point being the authoritative experience, the value of the authoritative experience, how do you discount that? <laughs> Actually, I heard something completely different. The person who told me about the movie Contact said what she was hearing was the series of prime numbers. It was right. encoded in the prime numbers. Okay, okay, okay. So, so, so the so idea it was is encoded, that, that yeah, yeah. every intelligent civilization will share one thing in common. Right. They'll discover the numbers and they'll discover the prime numbers, these special numbers yeah. out of which all the other numbers are multiplicatively generated. And so we believe that you know, if all of the fields of human culture and knowledge that 
mathematics is probably the most the most universal, followed by physics and so forth. And so we can expect that extraterrestrial civilizations will have something like mathematics. We won't or expect arithmetic. that they'll arithmetic. I mean, even sort of just some some kind of arithmetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the all of the deepest problems, not all the deepest problems, but the most beautiful problems in contemporary mathematics all come right out of arithmetic. So, you know, number theory is called the higher arithmetic. And as you certainly know, in the 1990s, Andrew Wiles proved Fermat's last theorem, which was the greatest mathematical breakthrough in the last, you know, 50 years. And, you know, this is a theorem about whole numbers. It's arithmetic. And the reason Fermat's last theorem was so appealing to the public imagination is that everyone can understand the statement of the theorem. It's about whole numbers. And the the machinery that was evolved, the incredible abstract machinery that was involved, evolved to solve this, you know, goes way beyond anything, you know, imaginable. Even, you know, most people who get PhDs in mathematics from MIT can only understand a small part of the theory. The, the original theorem, the proof was a, a thousand pages long. But, you know, it's to prove something See, that's just faith. about... about <laughs> Most huh? of us have to take that on faith. You know, tongue-in-cheek, my point being that how many people can actually run through these proofs and they have to sort of just take it on faith that there's a consensus of smarter people than them that say yeah. it works. And Well, the, the, new, the new thing actually is that uh, proofs are being... There's a, another conjecture about whole numbers in arithmetic called it's called the ABC conjecture. This is why I felt like drowning when I was reading your book oh, because I didn't mention the ABC conjecture. No, in the no. Book, but, but I'm uh, saying this is my point that you run through a tremendous amount of material. It's a unique experience reading your work because in fact you do cover all these things. I think I'm skating on thin ice though. So, uh, and when you're skating on thin ice, speed is your ally. Uh, but I will uh, say <laughs> this this is a compliment as well and uh, it's a I think uh, an endorsement for getting your latest book, When Einstein Walked with Girdle, which is that I think you do this really great job of introducing. You wrote in the book here, I'm going to quote you, that you wrote that your goal is to enlighten the newcomer while providing a novel twist that will please the expert. I think you do that. That's right. But I think you also provide exposure to so many types of questions. And I think that that can set anyone, including the novice, at the very least, even in the process of being thrown into the deep end of the pool, encountering all these different topics, it provides exposure in a way that I don't think you get easily in other ways. I don't think you get exposure to all these topics. Yeah, and I try to keep book. each one you know, brief. It, it is uh, brief. Because it's like, ta- you know, I, I said it's like talking to somebody at a cocktail party. You have, a, oh, I have this you know, interesting new idea about infinity. Let me just show you, and you get out a pencil, and you draw a little thing on your cocktail napkin. You that's that nice. And then, and then that's the end of it. You know, that's great, enough for one day. You're definitely a great compliment to have to. You're a great person to throw into any cocktail party. You would add a uh, That's not what my sure. friends say, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> you can wander around and sort of. I can clear out a room and then you center of civilization. I'm a bore of international repute. But hold on a second. Oh, the ABC conjecture. I was just saying that there's a Japanese man whose name I can't pronounce who has come up with a, he claims is a proof of the ABC conjecture. And at first, is nobody could understand Nakamoto? the proof. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. No one could understand the proof. And then eventually he was able to explain it to a few other mathematicians, some Japanese, some American, three or four. And when they came to understand it, when they would try to explain it to other people, no one could understand them. So once you come to understand it, suddenly no one else can understand what you're saying. And so it's weird. It's kind of a scandal in the field of mathematics that we don't know yet. 
you know, proofs are supposed to be something that in theory a machine can check because it's a kind of mechanical way of reasoning. But now even mathematicians don't know whether these proofs are crazy or valid. But I mean, Gödel, we're talking about uh, Kurt Gödel, who was an Austrian logician who came up with the uh, celebrated, uh, it's called Gödel's incompleteness theorem. theorem. And he proved that no logical system that has you know, nice properties could ever encompass all of mathematical truth. And this was a real bombshell. It was like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. It suddenly, he proved it in the uh, 1920s. And it caused it really, Bertrand Russell a lot of heartburn. Caused a lot, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was very upsetting to a lot of mathematicians because the idea was that anything that we conjecture in mathematics, we should either be able to prove or show is false. And Gödel said, no, regardless of what logical system we're using, there will always be truths that are outside the bounds of that of that logical system. So when when Gödel was in Vienna, when the Nazi Anschluss happened, and he fled to America to the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. And uh, Einstein was the star member of the Institute. He had been there for about 10 years prior to Gödel's arrival because he had to leave Germany because of the Nazis. And Einstein was a very, you know, he was the world's most famous scientist and a rather intimidating figure. And even the, you know, all of the assorted eccentric geniuses at the Institute for Advanced Study were a little intimidated by him and were, you know, a little afraid to talk to him in depth. But Gödel was intimidated by nobody because he didn't have the emotional intelligence to realize that, you know, that he should be intimidated. But he was a genius of Einstein's stature. And so they became very close friends. And they would walk every morning to the Institute for Advanced Studies together from their houses in Princeton and just talk about the most outre, arcane matters, you know, the nature, especially the nature of time, which is, you know, a deep, deep subject. And, um, and which I a lot Einstein of time in, knows a good deal. Uh, yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, <laughs> a, a Gödel surprised Einstein, though, because I think it was Einstein's 50, was it his 50th or his 60th birthday? It was must have been his 50th birthday. Gödel came up with a solution to Einstein's, the field equations of general relativity, which no one else had imagined existed. This solution described a universe that was not expanding or contracting. Our own universe, as we know, is expanding. And Einstein didn't like the idea of an expanding universe because he thought the universe should be unchanging and eternal. So he monkeyed with his theory. And that was a mistake because then it was discovered that the universe actually is expanding. But there are other possible solutions to the um, equations of general relativity, one of which Gödel discovered. And that was a rotating universe in which there were what he called closed time-like lines. And if you follow one of these trajectories, you could travel around the universe and end up returning to your own past. Right. So it's like, it's not, you don't need a time Wasn't machine. There, you, didn't, what was yeah. the name of the constant that Einstein had put into one of his equations in order to make that work? Uh, the cosmological, the cos cosmological constant. constant. Yeah, yeah. And Einstein, re Einstein re thought that was a terrible mistake. Actually, it's come back. <laughs> but uh, well, but is that's there, another, is there question, another question. Is there, what is the distribution of physicists, what percentage believe in inflation? So the, you know, when the Big Bang Theory was first formulated and then before the Second World War and then confirmed in the 1960s when some uh, physicists at Bell Labs in New Jersey picked up this kind of hissing sound on one of their antennas. Mm -hmm. And first they thought it was bird guano that had landed on the antenna, but it turned mm -hmm. out to be the echo of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. 
So the Big Bang Theory was confirmed. With the Big Bang Theory, as we all know, posits that the universe began with a kind of, you know, we can metaphorically call it a big explosion about 13.8 billion years ago. We, we now date it. And the whole thing is expanding. It's not expanding into a pre-existing space. Space is itself is expanding. You think of it as like a balloon blowing up. The surface of a balloon. It's like the surface of a balloon. It's the expansion of a two-dimensional surface on top of a three-dimensional object. Is that a fair uh, way? Yeah. So it's a, in this case, it's a, it's a three-dimensional version of the, of the surface of a balloon. You know, there are essentially two possibilities. Either it will expand forever or there's enough stuff in the universe, enough gravitational mass to arrest the expansion eventually, and then it'll contract, and it will all eventually collapse into a big crunch. So these were the two possibilities, either a, uh, an eternal expansion that would you know, slow down but, but would go on forever, or a collapse. In the 1990s, it was discovered that the universe is expanding, and it's expanding at an accelerating rate. And that was, you know, surprised everyone because it didn't conform to any, you know, model of the Big Bang cosmology. And so at that point, I'm sorry, this is a really complicated story and I'm going into too much detail, but <laughs> no, at that great. point, they, wait a minute, Einstein had this thing called the cosmological constant. This is just what we need to understand this new discovery that the expansion of the universe is accelerating rather than slowing down. So Einstein's biggest blunder turned out not to be such a big blunder after all. And so, by the way, this this should be very depressing. The idea that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate means that eventually there's no hope for our, our far descendants. If it were expanding at a nice stately pace forever, there would be some hope that our descendants could exist for all eternity. But it's expanding so fast that it's literally kind of pulling itself apart, to speak metaphorically. And so there'll be no hope for our far descendants. This reminds me of a very, I, there's a very funny uh, scene in, in Woody Allen's film, Annie Hall, when Woody Allen is a little boy and he won't do his homework. And his mother calls a, uh, anyway. a psychiatrist. And, uh, <laughs> and the psychiatrist says, you know, what's wrong? And the boy's name is Alvy. What's wrong, Alvy? And he goes, well, the universe is expanding. And, you know, if it's expanding, it'll break up eventually. So why should I do my homework? And he goes, oh, Alvy, the universe, you know, will hold together for a long, long time. And, and his mother says, you know, and you're in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. <laughs> yeah. you, know, well, I, I, you know, eventually Brooklyn will crack apart, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, That was a great scene. You're right. So... Let's talk about base reality, because we're kind of touching on that with our conversation on mathematics. What do you think, acknowledging the fact that it may be, un, you know, reality itself may, may be unknowable, but if you were guessing at what that could be, what do you think it is? How do you think about that? Well, my own thoughts on this are not interesting, but I've been around a lot of people who do have interesting thoughts. And the first thing I'll say is they all radically disagree on what reality is in itself, in its most basic form. And their ideas on what reality fundamentally is would probably be shocking to the average man on the street, although perhaps not to uh, your audience. So one example is that, you know, we used to think that the atomists who were pre-Socratic, who flourished in the uh, fifth century BC, they had sort of the first scientific conception of the world, that it's basically atoms knocking around in a void and coming into various formations. That's what constitutes this table and the stars and you and me and so forth. It's all atoms in the void, atoms in empty space. 
And so when we think of atoms, what are they? They're like you know, little billiard balls that you know, sometimes come together and bounce off each other. They sometimes stick together because they have certain properties. So you know, basically, the physical world, at least, consists of stuff. And some people believe in addition to the stuff, there's also kind of spiritual stuff. There's We have souls that aren't material and consciousness, which may not be material. And stuff as we perceive it. Yeah. Well, let's just be naive about it and say, you know, this table looks pretty solid to me. It's solid stuff. And my soul, if I have a soul, which I don't think I have, if I do, it's a very beautiful soul. That's maybe not stuff. That's something more kind of ghostly. And this is an idea René Descartes, the, the French philosopher of the uh, 17th century, said there are basically two kinds of substances reality. There's thinking stuff, which is mental and, or you know, spiritual, and there's physical stuff. So we all think we have a pretty good idea of what physical stuff is. But then you start looking at physical stuff on a smaller and smaller scale which we began to do really in the late 19th and early 20th century. And then it's not so solid anymore. So the table turns out to be, you know, 99.99% empty space because it's made up of atoms, which, you know, are, if the nucleus of, of an atom is like a marble in the middle of Madison Square Garden, the electrons are at the you know, periphery of Madison Square Garden. So it's mostly empty Madison Square Garden on a small scale. Okay, so you think, well, at least we have these little hard protons and neutrons. But if you look at the theory of these particles today, they all dissolve into pure mathematics. You ask a physicist, what's an elementary particle? Say, oh, it's an irreducible representation of the Lorentz group. Wait a minute, that's not stuff. That's just mathematics. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all fields. What are fields? Well, they're distributions of numbers over space-time. Where's the stuff? You know, it all dissolves into mathematics. What is mathematics? It's kind of more like a thought than a billiard ball. And so this all of reality is a kind of put-up job, and maybe we're in the matrix. We don't know what reality is. And so a very good friend of mine who's the physicist who's the chairman of the philosophy department at Columbia, whose name is David Albert, brilliant guy, wrote a book called Quantum Mechanics and Experience, among other books. And if you ask him, he has a PhD in physics from Rockefeller University, and he's an eminent philosopher. You ask him, what is reality consistent? You say, oh, it's actually the quantum wave function waving in uh, infinite dimensional Hilbert space. And so, you know, this, this strikes me as a little crazy. He thinks we've discovered what the fundamental nature of reality is and that this answer is going to hold up for the next, you know, 500 years. And I said, David, do you really think that in the year 2518 that this will sound like crazy medieval stuff, the universal wave function, infinitesimal Hilbert space, they'll have a completely different concept of what reality is at its most fundamental. And so this raises the alarming prospect that, you know, science, we like to think, is valid because it converges on a theory of the world, but it doesn't converge. What it converges on is more and more accurate predictions. Predictions, yeah. But the better model, of the world, better models of well, actually, of the, reality. yeah, well, more and more yeah, accurate because more accurate the, models. But the models, you know, models. each model overthrows the previous right. one. So the Newtonian, the Einsteinian picture of the world, is completely different from the Newtonian picture. But it gives only slightly improved predictions. Right. So NASA, when NASA is figuring out how to get a a spacecraft from Earth to Mars, they don't have to use general relativity. They can use, you know, Newtonian dynamics because it's close enough. <laughs> right. You know, so, yeah, science converges on its useful aspects, namely prediction and control. But in the metaphysical picture it gives you a reality, it diverges crazily. And so is this the best guide to the way reality is in itself? 
So you would agree then that science gives us better and better models for understanding reality, but reality as it is, naked reality, is, do you think, unknowable? That would be pompous for me to say, but I tend to agree with that. I think that our scientific theories begin with our observations, which are essentially sensory and perceptual experiences. And we have these, you know, when you're born, you, you know, as a baby, the world is sort of a blooming, buzzing confusion, as William James put it. And then you begin like to be, see it's like being regularities. On acid. Being, being, ba babies yeah, like yeah, being yeah, on yeah, acid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just on acid yesterday. It's very much like being a baby. <laughs> and then you you notice there are regularities in the experiences and there are ways of predicting yeah. what experience will follow another. And sometimes these predictions go badly wrong and reality gets crazy, but they think, oh, I must be dreaming. And then you wake up and reality is predictable again. And so eventually you come up with complicated quantitative theory and you call it science. And then it gets very sophisticated mathematically, but you still essentially you are describing structures of experience. And so Andre Linda, you mentioned the inflationary cosmology earlier. Andre Linda at Stanford, who is the creator of the theory of chaotic inflation, which is the theory that's taken seriously by cosmologists now, I was having a conversation with him about this. And he said, you know, really all we have is experience. And we think of physical things as real because they're part of theories that enable us to predict our experiences, but we're deceiving ourselves. So then you're getting into this kind of crazy idea that reality is kind of generated by the mind. Or even deeper, by consciousness, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And there are lots of physicists who talk in this kind of lotus-eating way. Right. John Archibald Wheeler, who ah, coined the term of black hole and you know one of the most eminent physicists. He was actually Richard Feynman's teacher. Mm -hmm. He said... The universe forms us and we form the universe. So he called it the participatory universe. The, the universe is kind of an emanation of human consciousness. And, you know, this seems a little crazy to me, too. But I just like to be known by, you know, people out there who lead lives in the real world, that there are scientists who adhere to these rather crazy theories. And that's why I think, by the way, they need the guidance of philosophers who can sort of rein them in and say, you know, wait a minute, what do you mean by saying consciousness generates reality? Do you really mean that? So there's a huge misconception around quantum theory and quantum mechanics and what the implications are of the observer. And Yeah, a so huge argument. A book was just published called What is Real?, arguing that the theory that quantum mechanics has to involve an observer became the orthodoxy early mm -hmm. on. Niels Bohr, who was one of the fathers of quantum mechanics, enforced it. And it's a, kind of an idealist theory. And then it says that the observer plays an essential role. And there were other more you know, subversive figures who said, no, 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 wait a minute. That doesn't tell you what reality is like. That tells you how reality appears to the observer. This is not the ideal of science. Science aims at describing reality as it is in itself. Einstein was one of the people who believed this, and he always fought with Bohr over this, Niels mm -hmm. Bohr. And now this debate goes on, and believe me, it's the most vehement, vociferous, savage debate. I was just at an international conference in the Canary Islands last year so where steam physicists and philosophers who know physics calling each other crazy over this you know, precise issue, whether quantum mechanics involves an observer, involves consciousness, or whether it can tell us what reality is apart from observers. Einstein said, do we really think that God the plays... moon changes when a mouse looks at it? You know? Right. Or that, but what was this famous saying? God plays... Uh, oh, oh, God doesn't play dice plays... with, the, with right. reality, with the world. But with the yeah, world, that's with a, the a slightly different issue, but yeah. yeah. Oh. 
So just to close it off, because I know that uh, we have a limited amount of time, to bring it back to this point about what is knowable, because for me, there's a fundamental disconnect about making definitive statements about the world from my own state of consciousness. And you said yeah, we could be living in the matrix. The fact that you could say that, and I think indeed that is a possibility. So the fact that that is possible, the fact that you can't rule that out because the conditions of that thought experiment would require that you are unable to know what is real, that has always been troubling to me, which is why I've always tended to engage in this material by viewing it as a model-making, sort of you know, creating the best models I can to understand and predict the future, knowing that what I'm understanding and predicting, I can't grasp at its base as what it really is and then ultimately even questioning is that even what would that be what would base reality be like Tegmark he, he talks about mathematics being sort of base reality other people could talk about sort of an informational world or a, a world of difference being the foundation but what if these are all just constructions of our mind and the question of what is base reality itself it gets so contorted when you try to make definitive statements about what is real. So you're saying that we have these models that are useful for making predictions, but we shouldn't take them too seriously as revealing what reality is actually like. I'm sympathetic to that point of view, but there are others who will say, if these models aren't true of reality, then why do they work so well? That's the argument for you know what's called scientific realism. Sure. I would, well, I would say what I mean is, for example, if there are bubbles emanating on the surface of the water or there are waves or whatever, these are disturbances that give you feedback and information about something that's happening under the water. But my point is just to say that these are giving us better and better models of the world, but the world itself, what is that? It just seems like an existentially impossible question to answer. It's like when you ask that question, why does the world exist? You know, there are two parts to that question or two ways to break that. One is the scientific part, why does the world exist? And then the other one is the philosophical existential question, why does the world exist? And the second one is— yeah, I don't think there are two questions, though. I mean, I think that you know, one philosophical possibility is that science can answer the question. Right. But I don't think that you know, either science can answer it or it can't. But it's not as though science will furnish one valid answer and philosophy will furnish another. Well, what I mean is this yeah. when I say that. What I mean is that there is the humanistic— question of why. The human why in a scientific sense or in a sort of mathematical or rational sense means something very different versus what it means when a human being asks, why does the world exist? Why do I exist? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I just think those are two different questions. Yeah. I mean, if you're explaining why something happens scientifically, you derive it from a general law of nature. If your philosophical explanations or explanations for why does something exist rather than nothing at all, might take a different form. There are also teleological explanations that appeal not to causes but to purposes. And there are other things, you know, forms of knowledge that are even more remote from us than scientific knowledge. You know, for example, we were talking about, you know, objective knowledge of the world, that's scientific knowledge. But the famous question posed by the philosopher Thomas Nagel, what is it like to be a bat? It's impossible for me to know, to inhabit the consciousness of a being that's very different from me. It's impossible for me to inhabit your consciousness. In fact, for all I know, 
some philosophers say you could that be a zombie. You could be yeah. like data, commander data on, on Star. I've never seen any of these. They, I haven't seen contact or you know, you're taking it yeah, on faith. Yeah, I, mean, I, I hear about them. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen the Matrix either. Um, really? What a shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. Well, um, you, uh, I mean, yeah, David yeah, Chalmers. Yeah. So you you know David, I'm sure. Oh yeah, He's yeah, also yeah, at NYU. Yeah, yeah. He was actually interviewed back when he had that giant hairdo. He was interviewed in the um, addendum part of the Matrix series, and along oh, with he? Cornell West and a bunch of other. He's been milking that ever since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I reached out to him. He's like, instead, he's insanely busy. That was like a polite way of turning me down. But I told him that I hadn't even realized until recently, when I looked back at the addendum, that that was him. That he was actually that guy because he had that giant hairdo. I mean, he just literally cut. Yeah, it all he still off. has the leather jacket. He, he still plays has in a rock jacket. band. He's Australian, as you know, and he plays in a rock band and makes horrible noise, but he makes interesting philosophical sounds. But, you know, David now believes that in trying to explain where consciousness comes from, he is flirting seriously with the theory that calls panpsychism. And that's the idea that everything is conscious. So, you know, my brain generates consciousness. How does it do that? It's just a bunch of electrons and protons and neutrons in a certain configuration. When you bring them together, where does the consciousness come from? He thinks, well, it must have been there all along, or at least that's a plausible hypothesis to entertain. So I say, David, do you mean that neutrino has kind of proto-consciousness? And he says, yeah, that's possible. Think about what it would be like to be uh, an electron, you know, <laughs> in some... But does it ever trouble you that consciousness creates the theories that we use to explain consciousness and to explain the world? Yeah, I mean, you know, one hypothesis as to why the, the problem of consciousness seems to be insoluble is that the brain that generates consciousness evolved for other purposes and it would be like a dog trying to understand quantum mechanics right well there's yeah so that's, that's the pessimistic uh, but yet yeah, whether a system I mean when I was an undergraduate and late at night we would smoke lots of dope and we would talk about profound questions and one of them would be like can a system ever understand itself well, that can't be because Gödel's Incompleteness theorem proved that no arithmetic system could low logical. You know, so we would have all of these kind of woolly thoughts. I don't think anyone understands them with any precision. So that means everyone's free to think about them in a woolly way, which is wonderful. Jim, I appreciate you coming on the program and riffing off some of these ideas with me. We touched on like a fraction of, I'm sure, all the different things we could have discussed. And uh, incoherently, and I apologize for that. No, yeah. no, it, it was very Nothing good. should be understandable from what either of us has said, but <laughs> at least, you know, we're giving teasing hints for and sure. glimpses of <laughs> something that's that. interesting that we're talking about incoherently. Yeah, but there are other yeah. people who can talk about it quite coherently. And <laughs> I, I sometimes do when I'm writing, but never when I'm speaking. So I do. I'll have a link to your book on the post for listeners to get you. I was going to ask you if you have a Twitter, <laughs> if you have a Twitter handle, but I realized when I asked you for your cell phone contact number, you don't even have I a don't cell know, phone. I never had a cell phone. That's remarkable. Yeah. I know one other person who doesn't have a cell phone. That's quite a feat. There's somebody else? Yeah, one other person. Damn, I thought I was unique. He's actually an existential analyst. Oh, okay. Oh. Kind of a, <laughs> oh, no, a mystic. That makes me want to get a cell phone. He's I don't a, want to be in that crowd. He, he's a mystic, dude. <laughs> anyway, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, it's my pleasure. And that was my episode with Jim Holt. I want to thank Jim for being on the program. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stianos Nicolau. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforcespod.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hidden Forces Pod or send me an email at dk at hiddenforces.io. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.